Hey, this is Dave Pryor. Welcome to Leading Agile Sound Notes. Will Evans is back to take the place of, I'm finally doing a podcast without Ross, so that's nice. But Will, thank you for taking time out of your day. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I work with Ross every single day. I know. And he told me you guys were having a little competition to see who could do more podcasts. Yeah, but it's all about the quality, not the quantity. Otherwise, he would have already won. Oh, wow. All right. Gauntlet is thrown. <laughs> um, so we have a topic today that I'm a little bit intimidated by, but but we're going to see where it goes. We're going to call this podcast, Why Behavior Trumps Empathy, The Secret to Building the Right Thing. And what we're going to be talking about are behavioral impact personas and impact impact mapping. There, got it out. Sure. Um, so Will is the ringer that we've brought in for the conversation. So Will, can you tell these folks why you're the ringer for this conversation? Well, that's a that's really kind of putting me up on a pedestal. Um, I think one of the challenges I faced a long, long time ago, um, really in the late 90s, early aughts, was how do we design products that people actually love? And this is... Um, Obviously, something that a lot of people are are really thinking about, especially as large organizations realize the stiff competition they face, the uncertainty that they face, disruptive competitors coming out of Silicon Valley, and a lot of the large enterprises that Leading Agile works with is dealing with this challenge of, of digital transformation or agile transformation. And one of the things it really comes back to is, you know, who are you designing for? You know, who are your customers? What are their needs? What really motivates them? And uh, it ends up being a really complex challenge because the way most organizations uh, define what they are going to invest their money in has very little um, alignment to who their customers are, what the gaps are in the marketplace, the underlying needs that a customer might be hiring to the, them to do, which Clayton Christensen calls their jobs to be done. And then getting that into a meaningful format so that people can actually have a, a decent conversation about what are the things that we're going to actually build. Um, and now that we have built this beautiful refined backlog, how do we ensure that the right things are going to be built to the right level of performance that will solve for the right problem at the right time and at a price that customers are actually willing to pay for? And, and this really gets to the heart of, of great product-driven organizations. So it's a challenge that you know most of our clients are facing. And I think... Uh, you know, one of the things that comes out of the, the design world or the user experience design world, and it really goes back to 1984 in a book written by the, one of the godfathers of UX named Don Moore. I thought you were going to say George Orwell. <laughs> <laughs> really good. That would have been funny, though, right? The year that, uh, the year that Apple came out with that, that dystopian vision of the future um, run by IBM, if you remember that. Yeah. Um, same year, Don write, writes a book called User-Centered Systems Design, which, you know, most people didn't read, but he, he talked about the, the problem in designing large enterprise software is that you have really these multiple models that are going on. You have um, a systems model, which is the way the, the system actually works. Then you have this image of the way the system should work inside the engineer or the architect's head. And then you have a completely different model inside the head of your, your ideal user, or your customer. 
And very often the first two take no account of the third. Um, this then led to, you know, a huge industry of documentation, training, seminars, and certifications um, because we weren't taking our customers or our users into account when we designed systems that ultimately are meant to solve problems to make their lives easier. And this is, you know, pulling some of those initial thoughts forward, um, integrating them into um, the way that we think value should flow through a system, making sure that um, at the right time, people are having the right conversations with the right tools to, you know, augment those conversations so that they can really focus on on optimizing for investing in value um, and then allowing value to flow through a well-designed system and delivery. Okay. So, Given, I mean, every yes to everything you said, but to, to just for the purposes of focusing where we are right now, we're talking about understanding who we're building stuff for, understanding whose problems we're solving. Right. And so is, I want to ask one quick question first. Is there a difference? Some of these folks who are listening might know what a persona is. I'm intimidated by the topic because I already struggle with personas. And now we're talking about behavioral impact personas. Right. So what is the difference between those two things? So initially when personas were first um, kind of identified as a useful thing to do, I think it was in the inmates, the inmates are running the asylum by Alan Cooper. It's really an archetype of a customer segment that, that engages with your product to get a job done. That's all it is. Okay. Uh, and usually the way it was done is that when somebody has an idea or an organization decides to make an investment, they go out and they do a bunch of market research. They study um, customers in their context, um, going about their job. They interview customers through process uh, called contextual inquiry, which is you know asking them a lot of uh, open-ended, non-leading questions. Uh, they observe them. They do a task analysis as an example of another thing you can do. And after generating a whole lot of data, you get in a room and you synthesize a lot of the key findings from that data. And you generate an artifact that has some of the key information that are supposed to be the drivers um, um, behind what motivates a customer to do what they do. And it should also highlight, you know, what are their needs? What are their goals? Maybe it has some psychographic or demographic information about them. You know, uh, single male, age 35 to 45, white collar, professional, skillful in Microsoft Office. Um, and so that's what personas were. And, and, and here's where one of the first challenges came in is that everybody got really excited about, about using these as an artifact for human-centered um, uh, systems design or software design. Um, the problem was in the approach to doing so, which is most organizations would hire an external third-party agency to go out and do all that research, gather all the insights, do all the synthesis, and they would create these, these uh, books in PowerPoint, which they would then present to the stakeholders who paid for it, and it would end up on a shelf, and it would never be used. So what it wouldn't end up doing, Dave, is it wouldn't end up actually guiding the day-to-day -day 
trade-off decisions that product managers and product owners have to make when they're prioritizing what is it we're going to build, um, what problems are we going to solve, um, what is our theme for our next release, um, and how are we going to measure whether or not this thing that we built actually solves their problem to deliver on some outcome. And um, if it's not going to be used, if it's just an artifact that sits on a, on a shelf, there is a problem there. Um, and so more recently, um, there was another artifact that was created that, that actually achieved a lot of great things. And this was the empathy map created at X-Plane by Dave Gray. The whole point of using this empathy map or this empathy canvas was to get a bunch of people in a room and walk through a bunch of key vectors about a particular customer segment, have people generate on, uh, on post-it notes um, their ideas. And, and granted, this was completely subjective. Um, Dave Pryor was writing what he thinks I was feeling about a situation or what you thought I was thinking or seeing or feeling. Right. The thing is, that actual act of having the conversation, writing it down on the post-it note, getting it out of your head first, right? Putting it up into a shared space on a canvas, and then having a conversation where I could ask questions about what did you mean by this? Oh, can you tell me a story about that? That interaction, that conversation going back and forth is what generated the shared understanding. Now, that empathy map may have been dead wrong. Full of assumptions. Sure. That's a great starting point. Um, first of all, at least we're coming from the same, you know, shared hallucination. Number two, that gives us a really good stepping point, right, to actually go out and do some research to recruit 20, 30, 50 people, talk to them, videotape them, record the insights, and validate or invalidate whether or not our empathy maps were close. And so there was a lot of value in that activity and that exercise. The challenge is it doesn't actually relate very much to the things that we want to do when we're prioritizing our backlog if we're um, doing agile uh, inside of a large enterprise. Um, and that is where aligning a tool like empathy mapping or personas to another tool that we use, um, at least at Leading Agile for backlog refinement, which is impact mapping, becomes really valuable. So it's kind of like this sum is definitely uh, greater than uh, 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 the parts here. Or, yeah. or the, um, and that personas are empathy maps on their own. Valuable, certainly more valuable than doing nothing or simply guessing or taking an order from, you know, somebody in the business, usually, you know, uh, global brand marketing, um, telling us what to build. You know, that's probably the least effective uh, way of actually designing great products. Doing empathy mapping or creating personas is great so that we can have an anchor on what are the underlying needs, desires, goals, jobs to be done by the customer. Doing it with impact mapping allows us to draw this clear causal map between the things we are going to build, the problems or impediments we're trying to overcome that leads to a behavior change by specific people that delivers an outcome that will allow us to move towards achieving some kind of a goal. Now, when I walk through an impact map, there's a key piece to this. It's actually those three in the very center of the impact map, which is um, the person, the behavior, and their impediment. And impact mapping doesn't give us a lot of rich, rich information or data around that. And this is why we designed behavioral impact maps 
as a tool specifically geared towards filling out the information in an impact map so that you could actually create a really uh, nice prioritized backlog based on value. But everything that we're talking about here, and I'm gonna, I, I'm going to say some of this back to you to make sure I'm tracking with it. Sure. Everything, I think almost everything is, is, is still based on bias and assumption. Like if we, I've got a product, I'm trying to think of who it's for. It's for Jimmy. Who's Jimmy? Jimmy's 19 years old. He's got a car. He's in college. He's whatever, whatever, whatever. Whatever details I want to put onto Jimmy. They're all based on, I guess. <clears throat> then the way that I talked about this previously with Scott a, a couple of years ago in a podcast was that that persona is completely made up. He called it a proto persona. Right. And then I might do an empathy map based on my understanding of Jimmy. Mm -hmm. And then I want to collect actual data to prove out or at least discover where my biases and assumptions are, where they're wrong, things like that. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You're talking about another step on right. another after step we or, is it after we get the data because or 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 you can do it before it uh, actually the when you do it is less important than the act of doing it and the act of having a conversation okay uh, but there are out, out there there are multiple different artifacts proto personas are are essentially generating a persona ex nihilo which means out of nothing right um Empathy maps can be done in the exact same way. You are at least creating a shared understanding of all of your assumptions. Personas are based on research. Personas aren't made up. Okay. The same thing with behavioral impact personas. They're based on research. You can't make it up. The only way that you can understand what behaviors people are engaged in, um, what are their habituated responses, what are their drivers, what are their anxieties, um, what are the structural or contextual constraints that are either enabling or, or restricting their behavior is to go out and observe it um, in their context. Okay. So I want to, I want to take one more step back just to sure. try to, because I still get caught up in the persona thing. Um, there are lots of places out there where some executive who believes they are the second coming of Steve Jobs is listening to the little voice inside their stomach, the little man that lives in their stomach, who's telling them what they think. And they're saying, my gut tells me that this is this person with this need and this is their problem. This is exactly how we solve it. Bang, go build that. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to get them to take a step back from that ledge and say, listen, before you go build all the stuff, let's at least figure out who this person is. And we're going to abstract out whoever they are and then we're going to talk about all the things they think and they, they feel. And then that's going to give us at least enough of an understanding that we can start to figure out which of these things that we're assuming are true do we need to test first. And that's where we go and collect the data. Yeah, that's absolutely one part of it. Um, the other right. part that is that is really aided by the impact mapping is, is creating that that causal chain, which is, you know, that some, I, I realize for some people, when I say something like causal chain, it's, it's a little intimidating. It's nothing. Most of what you're saying is intimidating. Well, <laughs> not as intimidating as Scott. So that's good. Right. So that, that's <laughs> Scott's a robot. Um, just to get that out there. So I, I want to give a little context. So, so for the folks that are listening, one of the things that's happened over the last couple of years at leading agile is a lot of effort has gone into bringing in incredibly smart product centric people. And I mean, it, it is, you're like, I feel like I'm in school every time I talk to one of you guys. So 
It's only because we come from a different universe, you know, different, <laughs> um, different tribes have different language and yes. like us engaging in this podcast right now is, is in, is an effort to, to map my language onto your language and your language onto my language. Um, because at the end of the day, we're, we're still seeking the same outcomes, right? Yes. Uh, we're still seeking the same goals. We still want to build things that matter and that solve customers' problems. We still want to, when we're, we're thinking about our agile transformations uh, with our clients, we still want to help them structure a system that allows for people to actually discover what value is and create value while de-risking their system and not, um, you know, it's absolutely fine to have a gut and to um, get really passionate about solving a particular problem for a particular customer. I think the, one of the things we bring to it is a rigor and a discipline to how you think through that so that you don't lose your shirt, so that okay. you don't spend $100 million on a thing that will never fly, and then you got to get on the investor relations call right, with all the analysts and, and explain to them how you just blew a massive amount of money on a boondoggle. Um, okay. And so we're, we're, we're trying to provide that scaffolding and those thinking tools um, to really stress test this um, and, and to make sure that there's a little bit of rigor behind it and, and make sure that we're, we're, we're doing the proper level of analysis and due diligence so that you can absolutely have a gut and we have a mechanism for treating that, you know, taking that idea or the concept in, um, identifying what the jobs to be done is for that thing, identifying who the customer could be. And then, you know, from there you're saying, well, okay, to achieve that outcome, what kind of behavior change is going to be needed from this person? And then really testing whether or not the thing you're going to build is actually going to deliver on that outcome. And you know what? If it's not, that's okay. Do you have other things that you could build that might solve that problem to generate the outcome or not? Um, so it's really about increasing, increasing your option set um, so that you're effectively managing risk and, and doing what you're supposed to be doing as a senior leader in an organization. So I feel like I keep taking us a couple steps back, but I just want to make sure everybody's tracking with this with this. And I also, I feel like I'm kind of trying to walk a little slow too, because I want to make sure I'm not missing any of it. So let's say I come up with some kind of proto persona, some fakey persona, and I've, I've got my team together and we've done like an empathy map and that's a tower of assumptions. And now we're going to go try to do an impact map. Can you kind of walk through how that like going through that process and what we end up with at the other side. Sure. Now, the first thing to say is, is you don't have to do the, per, the proto persona or the persona or the empathy map at all. Um, you can, and sometimes it's useful. I, I certainly still believe that doing empathy mapping for the purposes of team building can be valuable. Okay. Um, I'm one of probably very few that is saying that empathy for your customer doesn't really matter very much. In fact, there's very low or no correlative relationship between having empathy for your customers and actually building great products that solve their problems that deliver outcomes. I might want to say that. You again. should just drop the mic on that one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to go near that. And, and we're going to explore this. Uh, yeah, not right now. We already have an elephant yeah. running. Let's with, leave that one alone. Scott will talk about you know, <laughs> the failure of empathic design um, 
and why it really doesn't. It, if you care about building things that are going to solve problems for customers, create competitive advantage, allow you to grow your business through really only one of four things do we care about. It's either going to increase your revenue, protect your revenue, decrease your costs, or avoid costs. And if you're not building things to solve for one of those four levers of value, right. you're kind of wasting your investors or your shareholders' money. And, okay. and so when I say that at least generating empathy for your customers, so far at least, there has been no peer-reviewed research that indicates that there is a correlative relationship between that and great products that deliver business outcomes. Okay. Doesn't exist. All right. But there is a lot of research that exists about the power of changing behaviors. Okay. And this is where behavioral impact mapping comes from. And there have been a lot of people that have kind of been swirling around this for a few years now. Um, there's a lot of books that, that are very popular in the product management world, you know, books like Nudge. Um, or the power of, of small habits. And, and the thing, the insight there is really that um, usually when you are building something for a customer, you want them to engage in some kind of behavior change. Okay. Or become some kind of an impediment that will allow them to take different actions that lead to different act outcomes. And, and now granted, each one of those, there's a bunch of assumptions in there. The nice thing is those are testable assumptions. Um, behavioral impact maps really focuses in on what really drives behavior and action by people um, so that they can take new actions um, and realize different outcomes. And the way it does that first is it really explicitly identifies what are the underlying needs, what is the context what is the intention and habits of your customer or your stakeholder so that you can identify potential interventions in that system or introduce new products or experiments that may overcome those impediments such that they may take new actions. Okay. So it's really focused on that behavioral change part of the equation. And it's we've we've done had conversations about this before, which I'll make sure to link to about you know, quitting smoking or changing your exercise habits or your eating habits, anything like that. Right. Exactly. Right. So okay. there's a there's a good frame, um, I guess that you could call it a, a frame or a perspective. And I, I come back to this when I'm thinking about um, introducing new products or new features into a product. Is um, this great line in the opening of Beyond the Goal by Ellie Goldratt? And he says over and over again, he goes, he goes, technology can bring benefits if and only if it diminishes a limitation. And so it really gets you thinking about the, the concept of limitations and how does that technology actually allow you to overcome or diminish a limitation. And so when we're talking about behavioral impact mapping, we're keying in on the behaviors, but we're also looking at what are the things behind the behaviors. So when Dave, when you engage in a behavior, um, whatever it might be, usually there, there, there's one of a couple of things happening there. You probably have an intention towards something. You want to achieve something. And there's also habit. And I want to deliver my project on time. Right. Now, 
My habit is to go and tell my team, you will work all weekend. <laughs> yes. But there's also all the other habits that you have. For instance, status review meetings to, cre to ostensibly create awareness, but really it's to shift blame, right? So you create meetings. You do a lot of habituated behaviors because those are the norms right. within the culture of your organization. And, and, and not to, not to sidetrack here um, because people get confused about what culture actually is. At the end of the day, culture is really uh, the ways in which an, any kind of social group engages in external adaptation and internal integration. That is, how do you um, adapt to the external environment learn something from that external environment, bring it into your social group or into your team, and it becomes, this is the way we do things around here. Now, at the end of the day, Agile, with, with the very ceremonies and the rituals, right, right, is all about changing those habits. So when Jeff Patton talks about the three Cs, right, the card, conversation, and confirmation, really, you know, the most important thing, at least that I see, is the conversation that is I, I speaking around a thing and then you reflecting that back to me. And then at some point we negotiate an understanding of what we are talking about. Um, and all of these rituals and these ceremonies and agile are meant to instill new habits so that we do things in better ways. An example would be we write things down, you know, user stories or, or features sure. whatever on cards, um, but we don't want to be too detailed. We're not going to list out every possible um, acceptance criteria given when then inside of that, because that would, you know, uh, alleviate us of the need for a conversation. And the conversation is the most important thing. Right. Um, so when we're talking about this culture change, the norms and the habits which people engage in, those are really powerful. In fact, they're entrenched inside the organization. And, and, and to some extent, many of these habits are encoded into the backs of your brain, which means it takes a long time to change that. And when we're, right, when we're creating these behavioral impact uh, personas, we're going through the exact same process. I really privilege the conversation over the artifact. What matters is, is doing the research, having the conversation, generating the, the behavioral impact uh, uh, persona, and then using that to have our conversation about what are the things in our backlog that we're actually going to prioritize. And when I talk about a backlog, I'm actually being pretty um, abstract in that I don't care whether it's... Um, a delivery team story backlog, or whether it is um, a backlog of potential projects, or a backlog of potential investments, or even if you're talking about a merger and an acquisition, and you're looking at your competitive landscape, you have a backlog of potential acquisitions that you might be looking at. And so the question is, how do you prioritize that? And is it anchored in your understanding of who is your customer? What are the jobs to be done? And what are their underlying needs? Um, what's motivating their behavior? And what impediments might you be able to um, diminish through the introduction of some new kind of technology? Okay. So one of the things that we said we were going to do when we recorded this was to try to talk through an example. And one of the things that I sort of struggle with is trying to visualize um, what this would look like, but, but you've created a sample and it's very timely given that we're all terrified of being locked in our homes. Right. So I'm going to make sure they have this picture. So if you're listening to this, you want to download the picture that comes with the podcast to look at this, but go ahead, walk us through it. 
Yeah. So one one of the things I've been thinking about, and and here's here's just to set the context. You know, leading agile consultants, we travel quite a bit. We travel every single week. You know, Monday we're up, we're on a flight, go to the client site. I usually um, make a, a a switch in Atlanta on my way to to the client site, um, and there are a lot of people traveling. And as we've noticed, the, one of the key reasons why the coronavirus has spread so quickly um, is because of the ease of travel. But there are a lot of other factors that are at play here. And so I thought that I might create a, an, an example impact map to understand, hey, if we wanted to minimize or reduce the impact of a pandemic happening, um, either decreasing its probability or if, if we can't do that, then at least decrease the impact of that. It's kind of the way we think about risk. Okay. Uh, I wrote, the, wrote out the, the um, impact map and I said, okay, well, if my underlying goals, is, our goals as a society, our goals as, 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 as um, Americans, right. is, we believe that it's good to have a healthy society. Um, to that end, we think that lower morbidity and lower mortality rates really good. We probably want a growing economy where people can find good jobs. Um, in fact, you know, jobs report just came out at 275,000 in the last month. That's yep. pretty darn good. Um, that's going to significantly change over the next three months. It's probably going to drop down to about a hundred to, to 125,000. Um, we need to think about what are the things that we're actually trying to impact, what are the outcomes we're driving for when we're thinking about uh, pandemics like uh, coronavirus. And so I gathered a bunch of data um, because, you know, otherwise we would just be shooting from the hip. Yeah. And so we want to see things like decreased incidence of, of people getting the coronavirus. We want to decrease hospital stays. We want to decrease outpatient visits. Um, then there's the, the entire impact of like lost earnings when people can't go to work, they can't make money for a large percentage of our economy. And when I was looking at some of the numbers just around uh, influenza type A and type B, we're talking about its impact on 11 to 26 million people every single season. It has a direct cost to healthcare of two to five billion dollars. And this, so this, this is stuff that already happens every year. This isn't Corona. This is just the every flu. Every year, just it's yeah. just the flu. Six hundred and ten thousand lost life years. Three point one million hospital stays. Thirty one million outpatient visits. So. The cost to our system and our society is massive. Um, so what do we want to do? We want to significantly decrease hospital visits. We want to decrease the cost of care. We want to decrease the incidence of people contracting the coronavirus. Um, when I'm thinking personally about me or the other folks, that uh, the, all my teammates at Leading Agile, we're all road warriors, right? So we're trapped yeah. constantly, which means we're always in public spaces. Where I'm, I'm sitting down on a plane that that is literally a petri dish of somebody else's germs, right? So I'm, yep. I'm I'm stewing in a petri dish there. I pull down the tray so that I can put my diet coke there. My hands are now all covered in. Germs, you sanitize right? everything first, right, Will? Well, here's the thing. It, yes, but not everybody does that. So True. we're going to get into like we need to engage. We need to. If we want new outcomes um, and we want to change the way this works, we're going to have to engage in a lot of different kinds of behavioral change. Yes. Uh, one of which, and these are, are, are problems that I don't know if they are real, but they seem pretty real, is that um, people need to engage in better hygiene when they're in public spaces. Yes, um, they do. 
as simple as a large percentage, I would say greater than 50%, although I have the hospital research that indicates that it's higher, which is scary, of people don't wash their hands after they use the bathroom. I was just going to say that. That is one of my two biggest. When I see people leaving the men's room without washing hands, I want to stop them. Right. So when you're thinking about this impact map, you say, okay, we want to change that behavior. We want people to wash their hands more. And maybe we want people to disinfect the surfaces that that they touch. And maybe there's some other kinds of behavior change that we want. You know, there's notion of called social distancing, um, which is, you know, if you're ill, stay away from people. Don't give them a hug, you know, or don't go to work if you are feeling under the weather or you're coming down with it. Anyway, there's a bunch of behavioral change going on here. And then from an impact mapping perspective, we say what problems or impediments or limitations need to be overcome so that they will engage in the new behavior. So say Dave is really (laughs) peeved about the fact that most people don't wash their hands. Um, I got got two, actually. The people that don't wash their hands and the people that don't put their towels in the hamper in the gym and just leave them everywhere. That is disgusting as well. Yes. (laughs) And And totally unnecessary. Totally unnecessary. But you know what? People are going to walk away from this podcast and they're going to be like, wow, leading agile people are really kind of prim and proper, aren't they? <laughs> well, I think so. So, all right. So I don't know. I want to ask a question about this because this, I don't, I'm curious as to where this would fit in. So they might leave thinking like that or that we're a bunch of germ freaks. But if you are somebody that travels full time for a living, right. that is something you have to take massive care with. When I go into a hotel room, the first thing I do is clean every surface in the hotel room. Yes. After I check for bed bugs, um, because that's my livelihood. Right? Yeah. If I get sick, I'm out of work. I can't make money. Right. Exactly. So that's that exactly. stuff becomes really important. Like cleaning the seat when I get in the airplane, I do the first thing I do every single time because that's it's necessary. Yeah, absolutely. So when we're does thinking, that fit in here somewhere? Yeah, it fits in completely because what okay. we're talking about is like what are the different kinds of behavior change that will by certain people will lead to better outcomes. And so the, what's powerful about the impact map is that it allows you to structure that conversation. Now, backing out of the behavior change, I got to say, well, what are some potential reasons why um, people don't wash their hands? And there are a number of factors behind that um, that I thought about. You know, there's, there's um, certainly changes in the social norms. You know, it, it may not be as uh, a, a shameful of, of an event for somebody to see you walk out of the bathroom without washing your hands that it might have been 30 years ago. Um, I don't know if that's true. I don't have data about that. But I do know that, for instance, people are, are under extreme uh, cognitive load, meaning their heads are elsewhere. They, um, they, have, they have earbuds in their ears. They are focused on getting to the next flight. They might be thinking about 10,000 other things other than what are the proper steps I need to do to ensure that I am not either becoming a vector for a disease or spreading a disease in one way, right. shape, or form, right? right. Um, and so when you tug a little bit about those problems, it allows you to think about, well, what things could we do that would allow us to overcome these problems that would lead to a behavior change? And here's the interesting thing is this is where nudges come in. That is, they don't have to be explicitly building things. It can be any intervention in a system. And if you actually care about different outcomes, especially when we're talking about healthcare or coronavirus, some of those interventions are going to be almost part of the environment. So it's one of those things where you can directly act on a person by telling them, you know, hiring an attendant in a bathroom to tell every person when they walk out of the stall, wash your hands, and then 
put a timer next to the sink to make sure that it, you know, it, it is on for 20 seconds and the person is washing their hands for 20 seconds. But a lot of research has been done on this in hospitals already. And what they found was that even subtle interventions, they ran an experiment where um, they, they monitored a number of stalls and bathrooms and counted the number of people going through. And one of the first interventions that they designed was simply putting a very subtle dotted line on the floor with, uh, with tape from the, from the uh, stall to the sink. And it increased the number of people who actually washed their hands by like 240%. It's this so this that simple thing on the floor. Here's another intervention they designed. They just put up simple little <laughs> pictures of smiley faces over the wash basin on the mirror. Yeah. Increase the amount of time people spent lathering and washing their hands. So that okay, so that so something like that with the tape on the floor, that's not like a product, but so at this point, what you're looking for is like a nudge, some little hint that we can give that will get people to change their behavior. Right. When, when is that something you put in a product backlog? Well, here's the thing. When you're thinking in terms of what goes into your product backlog, the things that you're going to build, which usually are, are features, right? You want to be using the same mindset and the same thought process, which is what are the things I could potentially build? Now, it may very well be software. But most large global enterprises that we work with are, have control or at least influence all over not just software, but also elements of the environment. They also have access to billion-dollar marketing budgets, which means they can do awareness campaigns. There are a lot of different things they could do, not all of which have to be software. Okay. But the key, at least when we're thinking about refining our product backlog, is there may be many things that we could do that solve a problem that leads to a behavior change. But some things we may be very good at, and some things may not be a, a competitive advantage for us to do. Okay. But when we're picking our things, we probably don't want to engage in something that requires a mass whole social uh, marketing campaign, but we may want to be able to pick things that we actually have some control and agency over and that is aligned with what our teams are set up to do. Okay. Once we map this out, when we really want to get into the actual behavior change and the problem, this this is the part where it really requires us to do a little research, um, observe people in their context, understand what their current behaviors are, try to under, understand what are their impediments or limitations, and use that to inform the prioritization of the things that that you are putting into your backlog, because oftentimes, I mean. I, I don't, I don't know if you've seen this as much as I have, but I've seen teams with two to three years worth of a product backlog. Oh, yeah. Most of that stuff is junk. It's every harebrained idea that any, that any you know. Everyone had in the shower. Yeah, exactly. Shower. Right. That's exactly it. This is a mechanism for so that you can clean that up so that you're actually focused on, hey, you know what? We're going to build four or five features. Four out of the five can be pretty tightly coupled to a known problem for a known behavior change with a known actor that happens to be aligned to our persona or whatever um, that is part of our customer segment that we're going after that's going to deliver on an outcome. But, you know, when you're thinking about portfolio strategy, you also want to think about, like, 
one out of five might be a crazy idea that actually isn't in your wheelhouse where you don't have the, the technical capability to do, but it might be interesting to run as, as an experiment. And that's the other piece to making this a little bit more powerful is you need to think of this as generating a number of different options because you may find that one particular thing doesn't solve that problem for a particular actor, but it ends up solving a different problem for a different actor. And that's where an interesting thing called adjacent possibles, which is a form of innovation comes up, is you've discovered this thing that doesn't solve your problem, which is for a stronger adhesive, but it solves a different problem, which is for a very uh, weak adhesive on the back of a piece of paper, which you can make hundreds of millions of dollars for if you just branded post-its. Okay. You were wondering where I was going to go with that. <laughs> I was, I was, but you landed it well. I guess, so So where I am caught is I can, I can see where all this stuff is valuable to have in terms of a conversation sense. And from, you know, from a product standpoint, understanding more about what is the actual problem? What are some sort of out-of-the-box ideas, ways we could solve the problem. We'll put a sticker up, we'll put tape on the floor, we'll have a guy there with a writing crop who smacks people in the head if they don't wash their hands or something like that. Um, I'm not... But you could... I want to make sure that people are clear on the connection between like that that step and the stuff that we end up building. I know you just said it, but could you go through that one more time? Yeah, absolutely. When you're thinking about whatever demand comes into your delivery team, um, whatever features people have um, for things that we could potentially build. Um, Part of this is really switching the conversation from order takers, which is what most IT shops are. Build me stickers for the mirror that make them wash their hands. Right, exactly. To thinking in terms of what is the problem that we're solving and and becoming um, agents that allow problems to come into the system as opposed to solutions. But, you know, Putting that into our backlog is fine, not a problem. But as part of our backlog refinement process, we need to think really rigorously about whether or not we have data that supports the assertion that building this thing will deliver on an outcome. Okay. And how do we know that to be true? And, and oftentimes, the only way we know it is to actually build some small vertical slice of it and to see yeah. how it performs. And, and this is, again, the argument why this works so well, especially in an agile environment, is that because we believe in inspect and adapt and because we have both incremental and iterative development cycles, it allows us to say, well, you know what, that thing that you want to build, Dave, that sounds really interesting. And the way you tell the story about it it seems reasonable that building that feature for a particular nudge in this part of our onboarding flow may lead to people doing something that we want them to do that will allow them to receive some kind of benefit. But I don't know. And I'm the guy that's in charge of the money. Yeah. And I'm going to say, Dave, what's the smallest of that thing that you can build so that we can test it with 10 people in human factors testing in two weeks now and see whether or not it actually leads to the behavior change or not. Like uh, two weeks for it cost me $50,000. Two years cost me 20 to a hundred million dollars. Let's do the two week version. At least get some feedback, right? Create that, that, that feedback. That's very lean. It's a very lean startup approach to this stuff. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So I, I think that's what's helpful because it's really about like the way product 
design and development currently happens versus how we're we're shifting the conversation and how we believe it should it can be significantly better is really about identifying these gaps like between the way we currently or have traditionally done agile and the way we could do it potentially better to deliver better outcomes well this is one of those gaps that we really need to fill is is really our understanding of behavior um, behavior by our customer segments that are engaged in, in actions, hopefully with our products, um, to do something. Okay. Um, and so it, this combination of both the, the causal chain with surfacing all the assumptions inside the impact map um, creates that shared understanding and closes that misalignment gap that exists inside of most teams. Um, the process of having the conversation and doing the research and validating what are the true mot motivators or shapers of people's behavior in their environment really closes that gap of understanding what drives people's behavior so we can design interventions that actually bring a benefit because they diminish an, a limitation to kind of riff off of Ellie Goldratt again. Yeah. Okay. But I would... I, I think a lot about like, well, why would we do this? Why? And, and, and I hear a lot of executives with any of these things that we introduce. Well, actually, wait, before you answer that, so, yeah. and I'm going to pause it, I'm going to edit this part because I've got, I, forgot, yeah. I have another call at 2.30. Uh, um, no, this is the best conversation you've right, had. This is the best conversation, I know, but. Um, we're really getting into the meat of this. Well, so what I wanted to do, I don't think we're going to be done with this conversation today, but can can, when you're when you explain what you're about to explain, can you talk about it in the context of the leading agile, like leading agile's approach? Because I know that that's going to be something marketing is going to look for is just to tie this back to. Like, is this something everybody does, or is this something that just we do? Impact mapping and behavioral impact. Well, first of all, nobody does behavioral impact personas yet, except for me, um, because I was the one who created them. Um, all right. And we're in the midst of, uh, we're, we're, this is our first step towards proselytizing this as the way, as the way forward. So this is something that you created. Um, why is this so important to the way that we're approaching the work that we're doing with our customers? Absolutely. I think, you know, when we think from the leading agile approach, which really tries to distill it down into the simplest possible terms, we think about the three things, right? We think about backlog, teams, working test software. Um, one of the key elements that a product that from a product uh, mindset you're thinking about is having a healthy, refined backlog that's prioritized based on value. And a and a key way of thinking about value is the extent to which it solves an actual customer problem that changes the behavior that leads to a new outcome. And so within the leading agile approach, we take a pretty disciplined approach to how you think about refining your backlog and impact mapping is a relatively common technique, or at least over the last three or four years has become more so for really tightening up the quality of your backlog. So it, so teams, which are, you know, the bottleneck within our system, they're a non-instantly available resource. They're also very expensive. We want to make sure that they're working on building the right things. Impact mapping allows us to do that better. Behavioral impact uh, personas really allow us to double click into that person, behavior, problem kind of troika and 
make sure that it's rich with data that supports our understanding of what actually causes behavior change. And this is unique to the way Leading Agile is thinking about it for a couple of reasons, one of which we have such a deep and rich and, and, and really validated experience bringing Agile transformations into large organizations. The other thing is, as we are doing it, as we are um, consulting with these organizations, but even when we're, we're sitting down, as I was last week, um, and rigorously writing and rewriting epics and features and stories, we come to get a much better understanding of the kinds of problems our large enterprise clients are facing. Um, and as we're thinking about, well, you know, from a portfolio team perspective, we're, we're really trying to ensure that we are solving the right jobs to be done. Um, when we're thinking about our product backlog, we want to make sure that we're building the right thing. Um, and this, these are mechanisms that allow us to do this, and it's pretty unique to the leading agile approach. The other thing is we intentionally designed all of these interaction points and all these conversations that allow us to simply use these artifacts, bring these artifacts or these methods into the system, which is relatively open as a framework. Um, so we can do a lot of these different things as long as we're making sure that we're answering the right questions at the right time. Um, it just so happens that Leading Agile decided to make an investment in product folks and folks with a design thinking background to integrate this kind of thinking to, to, to really focus in on how do you connect that strategy to execution and how do you make sure that, that when you're looking at your portfolio of potential investment options that you could invest in, um, how do you make sure that those are actually aligned um, and customer aligned to your strategy, but also customer centric, meaning we're really focused in on solving those needs to change those behaviors. And so it, it just so happens to be we have the right clients and uh, to be able to use a lot of these tools and methods and thinking, but we also have the right talent from a leading agile perspective in that we have people with deep, deep expertise in agile, but also people with really, really solid product chops and design chops that are thinking about how do we constantly iterate on not just the way that ideas turn into work and tested product, but also how do we restructure teams' roles and their interactions to better support the organization to deliver better ideas to working tested product. And so we're kind of working across multiple different systems, you know, system of delivery, which is focused on the flow of value, and then the system of transformation, which is really about the flow of decisions through an organization. So we're acting on both of those simultaneously, and we're in a unique position to do so. This stuff is amazing. I think this is going to take like five or six more podcasts to even scratch the surface of. I mean, I, I, I really want to be able to come back and, and talk more about, you know, um, this approach that, that, that the company has taken in, in making an investment in, in not just a product. You know, everybody in Agile is saying it's got to be product-centric, but all you guys together and the stuff that you're coming up with, we're also using internally. So I think that is a really good testament to how important it is to the company and to what we see as being necessary to success in, in helping, you know, ourselves and the people we work with get better at delivering this stuff. Right, absolutely. I think um, the other thing is we're pretty agnostic about a lot of our use of these artifacts because we do actually come at it from, you know, the conversation is most important. But when we're exploring what are the jobs to be done, what are the market opportunities that we might want to might want to seize, you know, 
moving quickly, you know, from, well, if we're going to design, if we believe that writing good epics, um, which are focused on business outcomes is, is valuable. Well, how do you write good epics? What are, what are the inputs and what are the outputs? Um, knowing that the artifact itself serves no value in the eyes of the customer. Um, these are, these are nothing more than scaffolding so that we can make better decisions about how we invest our money. Um, but in each one of our tiers in our in our governance model, um, we think about what are the types of activities we need to engage in that will change the kinds of behaviors at the team level so that we're optimizing for uh, throughput of valuable stuff. And so we, we do actually, you know, introduce each of these at a very intentional point in our process so that as teams are growing and becoming more effective, they're also continuously learning to get better at doing the thing that they've been doing. Yeah. So it's, so it's understanding, not just changing their, their working habits, but also getting better depth on who their customer is. Right. It's a thing that Scott refers to as the craft of product, right? Um, you know, there's the mindset and there's the system, but there's also the craft of just being able to be good at writing great epics, features, and stories are skills that people have to learn. And the, the quality of your epics or features is really dependent upon the quality of your inputs. Those inputs can come from a lot of places and, and they need to sure as hell come from somewhere other than uh, a senior executive's gut. <laughs> well that little gut voice is very important all right if i we're going to do a lot more conversations about this stuff so if you're listening and you're enjoying this please send an email to leading agile and let us know uh, and well what if they want to reach out to you directly what's the best way to do that best way to reach out to me directly really is on uh Twitter at semantic will, but i'm always to connect happy to connect with people on linkedin and if you're interested um a lot of the the stuff that David and I have been talking about, um, both on this podcast and the last podcast, I wrote up in a massive article on uh, behavioral impact mapping, which I posted on on LinkedIn. So you can definitely kind of read it and review it, and maybe it that it'll start to make more sense, especially when you start looking at all the pictures of what is a what does an impact map actually look like, and how does the behavioral impact persona actually fit into it? Where does it fit into it in the process? Um, the other thing I wanted to just say is that uh, the other thing to stay tuned for is that Scott Selhorst and I are going to be having a conversation with you next month about design, I believe. Um, I feel like I'm going to be more referee this than is, anything this else. Is yeah, um, it's going to be fun. Yeah, because <laughs> Scott's going to try to argue that there's such a thing as cognitive empathy. Um and I'm going to argue that uh, whether or not it exists is irrelevant because it's not useful. <laughs> and, I, and my job is going to be to mansplain whatever the hell you two are talking about to all the normal people out there. <laughs> but dude, this was really cool. Thank you very much for making time for this. Hey, I really appreciate the time you, you, you allowed me for it. This is great. Mm-hmm.